Natasha eased into the king's chamber, stepping lightly as she carried in a tray of bread and soup. Lights filled almost every corner of the room, thick and golden, hiding away only in the darkest shadows. There was nothing that she would have recognized as a sick room, no bottles of medicine, no blankets, no doctors hovering around. Of course, dragons had no need for any of those things, so they'd never been created. But there were large cushions scattered for the queen and her ladies, and in a corner a clay platter held a few tidbits, in case someone could coax the king to eat. Pepper sat near a low table with Jan, keeping the queen company. Most of the other ladies were taking care of the matters in the queen's usual wing, and a few were with Bucky, handling the butchering of the meal Lord Morgan had hunted down for the king himself. They'd yet to get him to eat more than a small bite or two a day, but the queen said every effort helped keep his energy up. Natasha wasn't about to argue with a mage about things like that. They knew better than she did. She set the tray of food down by Maria's knees, but the queen didn't even look up. Her hands were tangled in the web that curled around King Howard like a spider's around a fly, holding him trapped in the thin silk strands. Exhaustion had put dark circles around her eyes, and she'd grown thinner around the face. Her hair pulled back into a no-nonsense braid. Even her clothes had been changed, from the flowing gown she'd worn when Natasha had first met her, to a sensible pair of leggings and a plain linen tunic. Gently Natasha touched her shoulder. "'Your Majesty, you need to eat.' Maria shook her head and leaned forward until her forehead touched Howard's shoulders. Magic sparked where they connected, dim flares of glow that were nothing like the brilliant sparkle of the week before. Not now. Majesty. Natasha picked up a flat of bread, rolled it, and put it next to her hand. If you get ill, you'll be no help to him at all. Mechanically, Maria untangled her hand from the web and grabbed the offered food to take a bite. Her eyes had filmed over with colors similar to the magic. Seeing it, Natasha shivered and turned away. Pepper and Jan were watching her. She smiled faintly and made her way out of the room, trying not to feel too much like a rabbit being watched by a hawk. Dragons almost never ate humans off the battlefield, but... But Pepper knew, and judging from the looks they were giving her, Jan did too. They hadn't done anything for some reason she couldn't quite grasp, but that didn't preclude a later change, of course. Suspicion had been thick in the air, and strangers were prime targets. It wouldn't take much for her and Bucky to be outed, and there was no one to speak for them except Lord Morgan. Somehow, she suspected Lord Morgan would not be interested in saving the lives of two humans. This had not been part of her assignment. As soon as she left the Queen's wing, Bucky appeared and grabbed her shoulders, dragging her into one of the many nooks that were a hazard of living in a castle made of caves. Her back slammed into the rough stone, scraping her shoulder blades. "'Where do the king's meals come from?' Bucky demanded, eyes wild. He'd cleaned up from helping with the butchering as James, but a few flecks of blood were still visible on his cheek. "'Who kills them? What pasture?' Even though she'd seen him in time to prepare for the pounce, Natasha kicked his shins on principle. "'Morgan does, and I assume the same place they always do. There's a pasture just for the royal family.' "'What have you found out?' "'The one we just saw was strangled on its own swollen tongue.' His fingers flexed against her shoulders. "'It had been gutted like usual, but it was dying before that.' Natasha took a sharp breath. "'His goats! 
Someone's poisoning his goats. We have to... Abruptly, she yanked away from him. Where are you going? Bucky yelled after her as she hiked up her skirts and dashed upstairs. She didn't look back. To tell the queen! Tony stretched out in the tiny cell he and Steve were shown to, back to the cold stone wall. It was nearly the same size as the wagon had been, maybe a little smaller, but it didn't have the comfort of the blankets or the illusion of privacy. At least it wasn't an owlbleat. Activity bustled around them at first, guards being appraised of their special status, people coming to take a peek at the newest curiosity, Steve hotly protesting when they weren't given clothing. Tony barely paid attention to any of it, and eventually it faded back into what must have been the humdrum of the palace gall. Steve still paced and grumbled, but the guards stopped listening to him. Otherwise, there was just the occasional patter of feet walking past to break his focus. The Maria had no reason to lie to them about her innocence, had no reason to lie to them at all, since she was locking them up. It would be too easy for Tony to verify anything she said if he got free. Even Steve's friends could tell them whether they were sent on a mission of death or one of peace. If the Maria were canny enough to work out how to poison a dragon in the first place, she wouldn't have bothered with that sort of amateur lie. Which meant that the Seven Hills wasn't responsible for his father's condition. Groaning, Tony put his head between his knees. Without knowing the poisoner, there was no way to guard his father from more doses. The Citadel had too many people and dragons, in all hours of the day and night. There were plenty of opportunities to strike and then vanish back into the bustle. Steve dropped down by his side with a heavy sigh. Their shoulders touched, bare skin warm and soft. Wordlessly, Tony let his head fall sideways to Steve's shoulders. Don't give up. Steve's arm wrapped around his shoulder, thick and strong and exactly as comforting as Tony doesn't deserve. Why shouldn't I? We lost. I lost. There's no telling who it is. Still, Tony let himself turn his cheek into Steve's shoulder, to breathe in and smell the thick scent of leather and sex that seemed to be ground into his skin. The quick washes they'd been allowed on the trip hadn't been enough to do more than keep them from collecting grime. I should have stayed in Azzi Terriot. Around his shoulders, Steve's arm squeezed. We're not out of options. The venom came from here. So whoever did it must have come to Vita Hill. That can't be that hard to trace. That's what I'm saying, Tony insisted. Steve's arm muffled his voice enough that it didn't carry. But he really didn't care if it did. So what if a guard heard them? Dragons don't come to Vita Hill. They haven't in twenty-five years, since before the war. Thick, strong fingers carted through Tony's hair soothing him against all his efforts to resist. We'll find a way. I hope you're right. The night passed. Tony considered and discarded plans to escape, rummaging through their options one by one. They would need clothes, weapons, and a place where Tony could fix the armor, none of which came easily. Steve's fingers dragged through his hair as the minutes ticked into hours, pleasant and utterly relaxing. By the time dawn crept through the little window slits near the ceiling, Tony had fallen into a half-doze. Steve's bicep clutched against his chest like a favorite childhood toy. Just an hour after sunrise, the door opened with a rattle of uncared-for metal hinges. Tony jerked awake a breath after Steve leapt up and stepped in front of him. He flanked hazily at the pair of guards. Most of the ones they'd seen thus far had been wearing plain white tunics under their segmented shoulder and breastplates. The two men at their cell door were black, edged with thick silver embroidery. 
though Maria wishes to see the dragon. Tony scrambled to his feet. If she sees one of us, she sees both. The taller one nodded. We were told you would say that, and to say that she sees you alone, or you will stay here without recourse. Lord Samuel has been asking after you, Lagatai, the other reported. He sounded younger, more eager to be helpful. He told the captain that he would be down this morning. Steve and Tony looked at each other. Steve doubtful and Tony suspicious. I don't think we have much choice, Steve murmured quietly, bending his head to Tony's. Go talk to her. I'll see if I can find help in Sam. If she's going to keep us here, it wouldn't be bad to have someone on the outside. Already thinking like a criminal. Tony smiled weakly and stole a kiss, not caring what the guards might think of it. It was over far too soon, and he slipped forward, keeping his hand in full sight. Okay, fine, take me to her. Surprisingly, they didn't put chains on him, and they did him the dignity of giving him a tunic to wear. It wasn't dissimilar to what he saw other people wearing, essentially the same, but made out of something softer and dyed a shade of deep blue. Both guards were polite, but still essentially guards, and didn't say much as they led up three stories of stairs, past the altars, and into the Maria's private rooms. The entire top level of the temple looked as though it had been dedicated specifically for the Maria's private use. They showed him to what seemed to be some sort of dining room and left the younger mentioning that they would be outside the doors. Instead of sitting at the low-set table, which was loaded with foodstuffs he recognized from some of the things his mother ate, Tony wandered around the room. It was luxurious in an understated military sort of way. It reminded him of his mother's rooms, with the flat ceiling and the square shape. The curtains at the windows were black velvet, but simple and cut, the only decoration a thick silver ribbon that held them parted to show the thick glass plating that kept away the winter cold. On the floor, black marble was polished to a shine, with no sign of a rug or any other such soft thing. The table was only a circle of pale wood, well made, but with no carvings to mark it. Even the couches next to the table were cushioned and draped with plain black fabric. A fireplace marked the south wall, merely a nook carved into the stone, but no fire had been lain in it. Tony tried to picture his mother in such a place, dressed in a black gown like the Maria's. His mother, with her love for bright colors and decorations, the odds and ends of magecrafts that littered her room no matter how her ladies tried to keep up, her slow pace surrounded by constant busyness. He couldn't do it, couldn't see his mother away from the lush comfort of Aze Terriot. In the temple, by the bay, maybe, where children collected in the courtyard to learn and the people seldom stopped smiling. There were other comforts there that would keep her, he suspected, but the temple palace at Vita Hill felt like a tomb. Prince Anthony. The Maria stepped in through an opening to his side, startling him out of his thoughts. Her footsteps didn't echo as she stepped over to the table, and her back held stiff and strong as she sat down on the couch and reclined back. Sit down. Standing isn't going to win you anything. Hesitantly, Tony took the only other couch available. The way it was positioned next to the table, it looked like he was supposed to lay down and eat. He stayed upright. The Maria's mouth tightened, as if she were holding back either a smile or a frown. Good enough for a dragon. He waited for her to say something else, something useful, but instead she just reached for a small roll and dipped it into a saucer of honey. You've come a long way. Eat. As if working on their own, 
Tony's hands picked up a flat piece of bread that looked almost like what they had at home. "'You need to let us go,' he said, tearing into the pieces to eat plain. It wasn't terrible, but it wasn't what he was used to either. We need to get back home. You will not be going anywhere while your flying armor needs repair. She didn't look at him as she said it, nibbling her roll along the edges. A horse will only get you so far in those mountains at this time of year. Of course, arrangements can be made to provide you with a suitable workshop to repair the damage. As for the legate, I'm not leaving him here, Tony interrupted. That made her look up from her food, eyebrows raised. He abandoned his post and killed some very good men. That requires punishment. As I suspect he knew when he made the choice to do so, you cannot defend him from the consequences of that. Tony shook his head. Technically she was right, and he didn't have any official way to save Steve. But the idea of leaving him made his stomach sour. Then send me back to the cell and you can deal with the consequences of that. Either we both go free, or neither of us do. They could escape. She didn't know that Tony's mage lock wasn't working. It wouldn't be easy, but they could do it and go north. Happy would be with the dragons at the border. He might be able to fly them in if the winds hadn't gotten too bad yet. For a second, he thought she might do exactly that. She glared at him, fingers tight enough around her roll that the thick crust cracked under the pressure. Is that how it is? I don't know, is it? Even though it no longer appealed, Tony made himself eat a bite of food. It went down like a chunk of rock. He's been a good friend. I won't want him to suffer for that. The Maria stared at him for a long, nerve-wracking moment, before turning back to the meal. The way she stabbed her bread into a strange, pale dip, it might have been a knife. Maybe I was mistaken. At least someone in your line has honor. What's that supposed to mean? Tony gave up on the bread, dropping it down to the little plate in front of him. Why do you hate my mother? She's the reason you even are who you are. You ought to be grateful. Your mother abandoned the Seven Hills when she ran off with your father, right before the winter snows arrived. The Maria swirled the bread around, making deep ripples that left it slathered with the dip, but didn't bother to eat it. The Maria is chosen at birth and ascends at majority, allowing her predecessor to step down. She cannot marry until she gives up the title to prevent political ties that would dissolve when the next takes her place. Twenty-five years ago, your mother chose to let your father whisk her away, rather than staying in her place and accepting a less formal arrangement, as is the custom. Something seemed wrong about her words that Tony didn't quite grasp immediately. When he did, he laughed. You're lying. Twenty-five years ago is when I was born in midwinter. He'd heard the story often enough about how his mother had insisted his father stay in dragon form that whole season, because it was just too cold for her otherwise. Her nose wrinkled in a snicker. Yes, you were. Your father was a... a frequent visitor for the summer and fall that year. Tony blinked at her as that sank in. Oh, you. He hadn't wanted to know that. So you see, she continued stabbing the bread in his direction. When your mother left without a successor in place, there was a gap of fifteen years before I was old enough to take my place. In the meantime, the army controlled the hills, rather than the temple as is proper. And that, your highness, is why we have been at war. Because of my mother. Because of your mother. He sat back, staring at the table. After a moment, Tony picked up the bread he dropped and took another bite. It did as well as the last one. 
So what are you going to do, then? I'm going to help you. The Maria finally finished her bread and reached for a slice of some sort of fruit that had been drizzled with honey and nuts. Unlike what you believe, I sent my people there to create a treaty that would last beyond the thaw. My eyes are working diligently, but she is limited by her need to stay in hiding. If word got out that she and her companion are there, I've no doubt they would be branded guilty, and plans crafted to raise my city come spring. Thank you. Don't thank me. I'm doing this to end this damnable war before more lives are lost. Don't disappoint me. Casually she licked her fingers clean of honey and stood. Enjoy breakfast. The legate will be in shortly to finish it with you. Wait! She paused in the act of turning to go, looking at him with raised eyebrows. Is there something? It was a long shot, but Tony only had one. I need to know if any dragons have been in Vita Hill lately. The Maria stared at him, brows pulling together. Your cousin visited two weeks ago, as part of the treaty negotiations. I would have expected you to know. In a cloud of black silk, she swept out of the room, not giving him a chance for another question. Steve watched Tony be let off, not sure what to feel about it. He didn't think that Tony was in any danger. If the Maria wanted one of them dead, she could have done it while they were tied up and presumably helpless. But wanting to show Tony something that Steve couldn't see wasn't exactly a promising start. The sunlight slowly grew brighter, taking on the amber-gold of morning while Steve chewed on his thoughts. There was more than enough to think about, including the rest of the trip. It kept him deep enough inside his own head that it took the sound of the door opening to make him look up. Do you get some kind of joy out of giving me a heart attack? I told you to let it go. Sam blocked the doorway, arms crossed. A plain blue tunic was folded over his arm, along with a length of brown cloth that was probably a cape. He tossed them in Steve's lap. Get dressed. The Maria's going to be a while with your friends. The tunic turned out to be one of Steve's own, probably salvaged from his pack on the wagons. He didn't recognize the cape. Brown wool, thick with grease to keep the rain off. It clasped at the throat with an eagle pin that managed to hint at the Maria's symbol, without actually being it. There were a pair of sandals wrapped up in the hood, slightly too small, but serviceable. He put it all on, using the darker blue cord Sam offered him as a belt. After months spent on the border and then days of travel, it felt good to be in familiar clothes again. Sam grinned at him and stepped out of the way, waving him through. Come on, let's walk. They ended up on the lawn behind the temple. Snow dusted it, already melting away where the sunlight hit it directly. It ruffled the surface of the lake, making little waves lap at the shore. Steve scooped up a few of the stones and tossed them in the water, watching the ripples bounce off the waves and turn into chaos. It was a lovely sight. Steve had a hard time believing that a monster was sleeping at the bottom of it. So, you want to explain what you think you're doing? Bending down, Sam picked up a few stones of his own. The water was too rough to skip them well. He managed to make one work anyway going off to find them. That I saw coming. Showing up on the other side of the world with the dragon in tow was a surprise. Steve grinned and timed his next stone so it hit Sam's mid-skip. I live to surprise you. If my hair goes wet young, it's going to be your fault. Sam's retaliation was to throw two stones at once, forcing Steve to choose a target. So who's your buddy? Even the Senate doesn't know. I don't think I've ever seen them so frustrated. He's... 
Steve's voice fumbled to a stop. Keeping anything from Sam was as contrary to his nature as trying to breathe underwater. I'm not sure I should tell you, though Maria seems like she wanted it kept secret. It's tied up with what's going on in Azeteriot. Stones clinked as Sam shuffled them together in his palm. He stared out over the lake, lips pressed together. Maybe you should keep it to yourself, then. I already know more than I'm supposed to. The Maria wasn't happy to see him. That was a bit of gossip Steve offered gladly. I think there's some sort of history there. You know how she is about dragons. In one white arc, Sam scattered his stones into the lake. A few sped out towards the middle, but most sank before they even had a chance. Take care of yourself, all right? I have a feeling you're wading in over your head. Steve looked out over the water as the sun finally rose high enough over the buildings to set it sparkling. Better over my head than at the shoreline. The workshop Tony was given the use of was far from the quality of his cave back home. It was basic, made more for magic than for blacksmithing. It didn't have any of the protection against fire and smoke that he needed. Originally, it had belonged to a woman who specialized in entertainment spells and illusions for religious festivals, before she'd apparently gotten a better offer at an amphitheater. Tony made do with what he could, and made up the rest. Protection spells were easy to put together. A golden anvil and a fire hot enough to work with were less so. Gold didn't like being forced into an unnatural state where it was fit to be out of steel, and was difficult to come by in the lowlands in any case. He ended up making do with bronze and a clay pot full of fey flame for a forge, and hoped they wouldn't muck up his spells beyond repair. His armor hadn't been treated kindly by the last flight. Long cracks ran down the center of the breastplate, faintly scorched from where the medallion had broken and spilled its spell. Rust had collected in the joints on one of the more delicate pieces from the humid air, little edges of orange-brown that would have to be filed off. There had been spells against that, too, but apparently those had gone with the flood from the medallion. Steve helped, oiling and polishing what he could. He didn't know magic, but he knew how to care for armor. It took a full day of grueling work to repair the breastplate alone, melting down the steel until it was the consistency of clay, and then packing it into the brakes. The fey flame burned so hot that his skin reddened whenever he had to handle it to fuse the new and old metal together. None of the humans could even stand to be within ten feet of him when it was at its brightest. By comparison, the medallion was easy. More jewelry than armor. Tony was able to cobble a new one together from the scraps of silver and copper that he was able to scrounge from the palace. The work was delicate, weaving hair-thin wire together into a backing that would lock into his armor. His own blood worked as a binding, tying it to his heartbeat the way the first one had been. While he worked, he added changes to the spell, simplifying them and magnifying the energy drawn for better speed, longer use, and less of a personal drain. The last thing he did was completely separate, working in glass and blue-stained leather. There were nearly no spells involved, other than the ones necessary to keep the glass smooth and clear. It took an hour to finish, but the hour was the one right before dawn, when the fey flame finally faded and the last tool was put down, sunlight slanted in through the window. Steve had long since finished his polishing, and had passed out on a cot tucked back in the corner of the workshop. Tony set the last piece aside and stumbled over, falling in next to him. He fell asleep to the feeling of Steve's arm slipping around his waist. Lord Samuel. Sam, he'd told Tony to call him, walked around Tony, inspecting the armor with a thoroughly appreciative expression. 
His bright gold tunic was cut down to his knees, apparently the best concession people in Vitahelm made to the coming winter. I can't believe you were able to get it repaired so well. I saw it when you two were busy being dressed down by the Maria. It looks like you'd been struck by lightning. That happened once, trying out weather spells. Wasn't fun. Tony held his arms out and let Sam get an eyeful. He'd slept through most of the day after fixing the armor, and had woken up to Steve packing a travel bag for them. My hair stood on end for a week. They were behind the main palace building, past the grandeur, and into the places that were actually functional. Snow dusted the ground lightly, but was already starting to melt in the sunlight. Clay pots filled with decorative kitchen herbs lined the knee-high walls of the walkway, beyond which the ground was being put to use for a garden. Behind it was a complex of official-looking buildings, all set in a circle, with a deep, still lake at their heart that glimmered in the earthy morning sunlight. Of course, each was set on its own hill, seven in total. Tony was starting to suspect that the Hillsians had the creativity bred out of them. "'If you ever get tired of being a prince, come back here. Our blacksmiths could learn a thing or three from you.' Sam's fingernail rang on the curved shoulder plate. "'If this piece goes through—' "'We'll see about a trade deal,' Tony promised, trying not to look too smug. It was a nice change, having someone admire his armor. Back in Azateriot, it was just another reminder of his failings. Soft footsteps sounded on the stone of the uh, soft footsteps sounded on the stone of the path. They both turned in time to see Steve come up, wearing a clean, repaired version of his armor, and carrying two stuffed packs, his helmet hooked at his belt. You can take your hands off him now, unless you want to come with us. Immediately Sam picked up his hand and took a step back. No thank you. I got enough cold just going to the foothills. He's all yours. Speaking of travel, Tony added in, reaching for his own pack, and pulling out the result of his last hour of work. Catch. Steve caught it single-handedly, holding up the circle of leather. Light glinted off the glass, gently making it obvious how clear it was. What's this? Tony tapped the corner of his eyes. They'll protect your eyes while we're flying. Really? The things twisted in Steve's hand as he inspected them, eventually finding the tiny buckles Tony had installed in the back and putting them on. The leather strap split into two smaller ones just behind the ear, so they wouldn't take up too much space under his helmet. He tightened it down and blinked at them from behind the sheet of glass. It feels like a blindfold. Sam snickered. You look ridiculous. Privately, Tony agreed. The glass made his eyes look a little too big and the frames that held it in place were hideous. But as long as Steve didn't end up with his eyes frozen shut in the mountains again, then that was what mattered. But he'll be more comfortable. Tony adjusted his back and then held out his arm. Come on, we're losing daylight. Steve stepped into Tony's grip, fitting perfectly against his side. Sam stepped back and lifted his hand in farewell as Tony fit the new medallion into its place. It lit up, shining blue, white light that spread over the armor's surface, and settled into the runes carved into them. His boots hissed when power reached them, snow melting in a wide circle around them. If you need to get word out, have the eyes read a letter. Sam called over the sound of the spell starting. We can't do much, but we'll do what we can. Tony raised his free hand in acknowledgement and triggered the flight's bell, faster than ever before. He lifted off into the sky, cutting an arc over the palace. A figure in black was framed by one of the upper windows, watching them. The Maria hadn't made an effort to see Tony after their talk over breakfast, and that was fine by him. He got enough dirty looks at home. 
The land around Vita Hill wasn't plains or forest, but some hodgepodge mix of the two. Scanty woods were scattered here and there, and snow-dusted clumps of bare branches. They sped past nearly as fast as a true dragon could fly. It took the better part of a day to reach the foothills. The sun was just starting to set behind the western edge of the mountains, turning the ground golden red. People shouted below when they crossed over the human army. A few enterprising souls even shot arrows that missed the mark by a wide margin. Tony ignored them, other than flying a little higher to avoid a lucky shot. Steve tugged on his shoulder plate, forcing him to look to the side. "'We should take a break before moving on!' he yelled over the wind, pointing back to the garrison. "'We are!' Tony called back, grinning even though Steve couldn't see it behind the faceplate. Farther north, tucked into the rocky outcroppings and overhangs, the three dozen dragons that were left at the border camped out. The three on watch lifted their wings in greetings as he circled down to land, heads tilting back with a whir of surprise and welcome. Nearly every dragon in sight had the pale, washed-out color of ice dragons. They were always the ones left behind, since they didn't mind curling up in the snow for three or four months, while the rest hid away in Azateriot until the worst of it had passed. Tony touched down just outside of where most of them were gathered, and a dip that had been filled with thick, soft snow. Unlike Vita Hill, it had already gotten ankle-deep in the foothills. The mountains were likely much, much worse. Heads popped over the edge of the hill, looking on interestedly. One of them, pale gold like sandstone, with eyes that could have put a spring sky to shame, curled his lips and hissed. Then his head vanished, turning away from his prince. Tony ignored it, just like he had for the last five years. Tiberius might have been hissing at Steve's humanity as much as he was Tony, and Tony didn't much care to find out which it was. An oversized dragon, colored like the pale green ice from the oldest glaciers, lumbered forward past them, head-webbing lifted in delight. "'Prince! What are you doing here? You never leave home!' Just passing through Happy, Tony patted his friend's snout. Happy had been one of the first dragon servants who'd been willing to work for the runt prince. When he'd decided to go off to the border that year, Tony had missed him. The humans did their best, but they weren't happy. "'We can't stop for long. We have to get back.' Happy's head lowered, twisting around to eye Steve suspiciously, Crest pressed back against his skull. One nostril alone was the size of Steve's head. "'Who's your human? I've seen him on the battlefields. He killed Val.' "'My name is Steve. I'm sorry about Val. If it hadn't been a battle, I wouldn't have.' To Tony's surprise, Steve held out his hand. He didn't seem sure what to do with it, and neither did Happy. His horns didn't come back up, but they seemed to find some sort of middle ground when Happy bumped his nose into Steve's palm. This is about the king, isn't it? Happy's big eyes turned on Tony, managing to look sad and pathetic as one of the spoiled lap cats his mother had kept when he was a child. We heard rumors when Tiberius came to get the rest of the flight. Is he really dying? We're going to try and make sure that doesn't happen, Tony promised. Just let us rest for a few hours. The answer didn't seem to satisfy Happy, but he nodded, wing membranes rustling unhappily. Tony wished he could have sounded more certain. There wasn't anything to be certain about, though. If they made it in time. If they found the assassin. If they could stop the poison. There was a lot of ifs. Happy led them around the hill and into the dragon-made cave that was serving as a home away from home for the wing. Outside it looked fairly normal, the entrance framed by two rough boulders that looked like they had fallen against each other at some point in the distant pass. Once inside, though, 
The path took a sharp left and leveled out, turning smooth. Uneven walls stayed, but they turned bright colors where some of the more artistic dragons passed the time. Torches lit the way every hundred steps or so, their soft blue flames giving off no smoke or odor. Steve's head tipped back, following the branches of a painted tree up across the ceiling where the shadows swallowed it. All those scouts' parties and we never found this place. He breathed. How did we not find it? You couldn't. Smug pleasure laced Tony's voice. He didn't even try to hide it. It was nice hearing Steve be odd about his people. There's dozens of them, and they rotate. My father's the only one who knows them all. Even though he'd never been there before, it was good to be back where things were right, where the light wasn't too bright, the ceiling was rounded, and the halls were wide enough for his father's bulk. He'd barely realized how claustrophobic human buildings were until he was well and truly out of them. Here. Happy stopped at a crack in the wall and shuffled aside. It was half his size, enough for a small dragon, but not most. This was Lady Jam's. There should be a cotton there. After she hurt her arm, she liked to say small, said it hurt less. I don't think she'll mind. Thank you, Happy. Tony patted his old friend's elbow. I don't think she will either. Scales hissed as Happy whipped his head around to stare Tony in the eyes. Be careful when you get home. Tiberius says that everyone knew you did it, and that you ran away to hide from it. I know you didn't, but not everyone likes you. Tony's heart caught in his chest. Tiberius just has a grudge against me, he heard himself say, mouth working at speed without necessarily consulting the rest of him. It had the appeal of being technically true, in the same way that statements like being beaten to death isn't fun were. The word understatement wasn't strong enough. Everyone knows that. Everyone knows that you wouldn't kill the king, too. Happy's nose bumped into his chest before turning. Just be careful, your highness. After a minute, Steve's hand touched Tony's elbow, his thumb finding the break in the armor. Tony, he asked quietly, are you okay? Tony gave himself a shake. He tried to smile for Steve, but it felt sickly, dead. I'm fine. Let's just get some rest and we'll head out. They ended up sleeping on Jan's cot for nearly three hours. He'd expected a restless sleep, but Tony found himself dropping off as quickly as he had back in the workshop at Vita Hill. Exhaustion had dug its claws in and refused to let go until he'd made that much of a concession. It turned, waking up into a groggy slow process. Steve plied him with some sort of wicked herbal brew from his pack, even served cold, snapped Tony to wakefulness out of sheer horror. Happy was back on guard duty when they lifted off his hide nearly melting into the snowy landscape in the dark. Tony curved around and fired off a short round of red sparks to get his attention. He was rewarded with an enthusiastic wave goodbye. Once again they were off. It didn't take long before Tony was grateful that they'd stopped for a break. In the dark, the crags of the nacelles were dangerous enough. The winds made them worse. In a technical sense, the winds came from the northern oceans in the winter months, bringing the cold with them. More immediately, the wind came from every direction at once. They bounced off the sides of the mountains, turning into twisted whirls that sent him and Steve spinning through the air more than a few times. Sweat pooled under his armor, freezing in place where the cracks in the cold beyond what spells in the armor could regulate. Next to him, Steve was a bundle of warmth by comparison, the bracelet Tony had made him forever ago back in the forest doing its job perfectly. Staying as low as he dared risk, Tony's rolled and swooped his way through the worst the weather could throw at him. 
Steve's grip on him was so tight that Tony worried he might break something. One time he was sick. After a downdraft forced them down so quickly, it was as bad as falling. In spite of that, the few times Tony asked if he wanted to find a place to wait until morning, Steve refused. All he could do was keep pushing on, following the indescribable tug that said home. Tony lost all track of time. It felt like he'd been fighting his way through the mountain for his entire life. He couldn't see the stars clearly, and the moon seemed to jump around in the sky. Every time he looked up, they were in a different place, impossible to follow without a proper horizon on sight. At first, Tony thought the lights of Aze Terriot were new stars trying to lead him astray. It was only when they refused to move that he realized. He shouted in relief, rising up to skim away from the mountainside. It sat on the top of a peak, a faintly lighter silhouette where the moonlight reflected off its carved granite walls. Dragons lined the landing courtyard. They shot off flames as he dropped down to land heavily on the snowy flagstone. He almost kept going, knees trying to buckle. Every joint and muscle hurt. Every inch of his skin felt like it had been beaten black and blue. Steve braced himself, but he was trembling too. The familiar spells of peace wrapped around him, no match for his nerves. "'Where's my father?' Tony tried to demand with a voice gone hoarse. A cough racked his chest, forcing him to brace himself on his knees until it was past. As soon as it was, he repeated himself louder, wrenching his helmet off for good measure. "'Where is my father?' A few of the dragons, standing guard, glanced at each other unhappily. "'Your Highness, you—never mind!' Tony cut them off before they could say something stupid, like maybe he should wait to see the king. "'He's still in his rooms, isn't he? Have someone show my companion to my rooms. I'll take care of him later.' Without waiting for acknowledgment, Tony forced himself into motion. It was probably rude to abandon Steve like that, but he'd understand. Moving as fast as armor would let him— Tony dashed through the great hall and down the corridor that went to his father's rooms. There were nearly no servants in sight. The few he did see were quick to judge out of his path. Metal boots scraped against stone floor as he slid around the corner and burst into his father's chambers. As soon as he stepped inside, someone roared and snapped at him. Tony yelled and dodged back behind the door, just in time to avoid being bitten in half by an enraged lady. "'Pepper! It's me! It's Tony!' She hesitated, watching him warily. Her wings were stretched out to her fullest, effectively blocking off the entire room. Slowly her head lowered, green eyes focusing. Tony, I... I'm so sorry. Instead of changing back to her human shape, Pepper pulled her arms in and shuffled to the side, head lowered so her chin nearly touched the floor. Cautiously he edged in. When he saw the room, his heart stopped. Blood. It seemed like there was blood everywhere the floor, the walls. If the ceiling had been spared, it was only because it was too high up. Other than Pepper, there were two other dragons in the room, taking up so much space that it was impossible to make any sense of the scene. His father's dark bulk sprawled out on the stone bed, unmoving. There was no glimmer of magic around him, nothing to draw the eye away from the dull faded black of his scales, the sagging wings. Of the rest, what was left wasn't a dragon so much as bits of one, pulverized and scattered, Dark blood smeared the scales to an indecipherable purple-red, and the skull had been outright crushed. Noble wings broken, so the bone peeked through. Tony's stomach lurched. There was only one noble dragon that shade of red. Sunset, one of his mother's own ladies.
Back in the corner, his mother's ladies hovered in a group, standing shoulder to shoulder, chins up and hands linked. They stared at him like they might refuse to let him through, but as Tony walked towards them, they slowly broke apart, turning away. The new girl, Natil, he thought, had a mask of blood from a cut across her forehead, and her arm hung at a strange angle. A man Tony didn't recognize sat nearby, a short curved sword sitting across his knees, an expression of distrust seemingly permanently etched on his face. Maria was laid out with her hand in the girl's lap. The entire left side of her face bruised deep maroon. Scorch marks littered her clothing at the hems, and a nasty burn had left a blistering line across one hip. Tony swayed on his feet, feeling as though the air were being sucked out of his chest. Is she... She's alive, Natiel reported softly. Her odd accent clicked in Tony's head. Vita Hill. Steve had the same one when he spoke in Azila-san. She was better at hiding it, but not perfect. A head wound, mostly. She wasn't as vulnerable as the assassin had expected. And my father? The whole room held its breath. Natiel's expression flattened even more. He, when she went unconscious, her spell was disrupted. We couldn't do anything. She looked away. I'm sorry. 